Welcome to the HR Uprising podcast. This podcast series explores HR hot topics and challenges through conversations with relevant experts and real-life HR learning and OD professionals. The HR Uprising is about learning through collaboration and evidence-based action. We want colleagues to have the confidence and skills to rise up through their organizations by delivering real, lasting business value. Now, introducing your host, chartered psychologist, experienced change agent, entrepreneur, speaker, and coach, Lucinda Carney. Hello and welcome to uh, this week's episode of the HR Inspired podcast, which is aimed at forward-thinking HR, OD, and learning and development professionals. Uh, my name is Lucinda Carney and I'm the podcast host, and you can hear there's some interesting sound all around. I'm not sure if that's a child or a swan in the background. So today uh, I've got, got a very exciting guest from my point of view personally and a really lovely location. So we're by Tower Bridge. So there may be some background ambience and sounds all around, which are great. But uh, the person that I've got with me today, and I'm delighted really, this is my first conversation with, so I'm very grateful to Professor uh, Rob Brina. I mean, Brina as opposed to Brina that I've been pronouncing incorrectly for many years. So, um, Professor Brina is he's Professor of Organisational Psychology at Queen Mary University of London. He's also Scientific Director, the Centre for Evidence-Based Management. And he was topped, he's was, been in HR Magazine's Most Influential think, Thinkers a number of times, and you were voted number one in 2016. Um, and in our sort of pre-chats, I was saying that, uh, well, a number of years ago, you were actually my professor when I did my master's, although we never met because I did it all through correspondence. So it's actually great to, to personally meet and be able to ask some of the questions that I've always wondered about. But um, I feel, um, can I tell you, Rob? I suppose of course, myself. of course, of course. That's my name. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I feel that you're very visible and therefore a really great person to have on this show, someone who can help us with this crossover between academia and HR. And as you know, I said the purpose of this podcast for me is about for us to improve our credibility, let's say, as HR professionals, it is about being more evidence-based and also more strategic. So I thought, who better to talk to um, than this? Okay, thanks uh, very much for having me on. <laughs> so appreciate your time. So in terms of evidence-based HR, would you like to explain what it is for the benefit of the podcast? Sure, yeah. I mean, the short version is it's just about making more informed decisions, decisions both about what organisational problems and opportunities might be, and also better decisions or more informed decisions about what likely solutions or interventions should be. So that's the kind of simple, straightforward explanation, better informed decision. Nobody disagrees with that. Motherhood and apple pie, great. More technically or in a bit more detail, I guess, what it means is using multiple sources of evidence. So for us in HR, it's typically our own experience as practitioners. Mm -hmm. It's stakeholders' perspective, so employees, senior managers, maybe customers. It is organisational data from inside the organisation. And fourth, it's scientific evidence. It's about bringing those four sources of evidence together, say both to both understand problems and opportunities and also to make decisions about likely interventions. So... So I get the fact that we have those different sources of evidence and I think back to my time as a practitioner and I hope that the aeroplane going overhead isn't too distracting for the audience. Um, I suppose if I'm really honest, I probably used stakeholder yeah. influence yeah. and maybe my own professional expertise. I think um, maybe a bit of organisation theories, a bit of reference to that. Mm. Um, but scientific literature, yeah. I think is certainly other than that, that that I remembered from my qualifications sure. and maybe if you've done a CIPD course of things that you've been taught I think it's quite hard yes, for you to get hold is. of that so 
How it do is. we do more of that? It is hard to get hold of it. Uh, and I think it's also worth thinking about what are, the, what are the differences between the way we normally seem to use evidence and evidence-based practice. So everybody uses evidence. You said, you know, everybody does of different kinds. There may be some sources they don't use so much, partly because it's hard to access. I would also say that often organisational data is pretty hard to access. Yeah. So one difference is multiple sources. I think another difference is taking a structured approach. So you actually go step by step by step to, for example, asking questions, acquiring the evidence, critical placing its quality, for example, as you go through a series of steps. And I think the other difference is it's about the attitude or approach you take. So typically we describe it as conscientious, explicit and judicious. Conscientious means you try, explicit means you write it down, encode it, and judicious means you judge quality. So I think in your example of your experience, I'm sure that's right. It's harder to get hold of the scientific evidence, but I also suggest probably, like most people, most of us aren't that conscientious, explicit, judicious, and we don't follow an explicit process. We gather together bits of evidence. It may be good, it may be bad, it may be relevant, and we kind of put it into a pot and then try and make a decision. So you're right, there's, there's an issue around getting hold of it, but I think that's not just about academic evidence. I think it's about other kinds of evidence, and I think there's also issues around understanding and critically appraising and judging its quality or trustworthiness. So sort of being objective. So so as opposed to almost going, actually, um, this is the solution I want to do. I'm going to try and find exactly. the evidence to back up that decision yeah. I've already made. Yes. Going, taking a step back and having uh, an objective evaluative process of going through a number of stages. So what is the best evidence out there, for example? Yeah, from all those sources, indeed. From all so, those sources. So let's yeah. take a real example. Mm. Um, I've and So a typical scenario, I'm in an organisation mm -hmm. and um, the... MD or the sales director has said to me, need a development programme. Right. Our guys haven't got the right skills. Right. So what would be an evidence-based approach to me doing that? Okay, so the evidence-based approach is, okay. <laughs> so evidence approach first is to say, what's the problem? Yeah. So just because someone thinks people don't have the, the right skills doesn't mean they do or they don't. So you'd also always take a step back and say, what's the problem or opportunity here? And it was only if you did a proper assessment, I guess, of people's salespeople's skills and indeed whether they were somehow not good enough and indeed whether they're not being good enough was leading and an explanation yeah. for their poor, whatever that means, sales performance. Yeah. If you're at, you know, pretty confident that was the case, yeah. again, using evidence from those multiple sources, you then go on to say, okay, so it appears to be the case that lack of skills or limited skills is a cause of this serious organisational problem. Therefore, what's the most likely intervention? Now, your CEO, whoever said to you, it's training, but maybe that's not the best yeah. intervention. Maybe it's selection. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's giving people more skill, more resources they need to use the skills they already have or other ways of enhancing skills that don't necessarily involve development. So crucially, with an evidence-based practice, the key thing you start with is not is not a sort of solution or let's do something about this. You start off with this, what is the actual problem? And I think if someone says to me, what's the one thing you could do in HR or management or any discipline to be more evidence-based, I think the first the main tip would be focus on what the problem is because we're very keen in moving into solution mode, implement mode, roll things out mode. And usually I think that's the main stumbling block mm. is that we roll things out, we do stuff. People have no problem doing stuff, being very active, spending money, rolling out programs and so forth. But what they're not so good at, what we seem to find really difficult, is focusing on what the issue is. Mm. So that would be my starting point. In the example you gave us to yeah. go back and say, let's find out what the problem is first. And I, and I suppose, so I can think of um, a couple of examples there, which I'll 
reflect back and see whether they mm. would have been good examples. So, so certainly as being someone I was you know, heading up learning and development, I do remember without a shadow of a doubt in 80% of cases when someone comes and says, I need this training course. Sure. And you go, okay, so what is it you actually, what's the yeah. actual problem? What's it? And you would find out that actually they didn't need that training course sure. at all. So that would be an example yeah. of actually diagnosing yeah. what the problem was um, mm. for whether In an example with a sales one, um, I... I remember we did have a situation with a sales program and actually there was some um, psychometrics out there which had done some profiling it was um, profiling about different roles so there was an evidence there of um, whether there was a gap against the profile now of course you'd have to say is the what's the evidence for that profile being legitimate mm. um, it came from quite a decent psychology house actually but um, you know that would be an example of evidence and the fact that these people went through a psychometric profile and there was actually a gap um, against that desired profile let's say a solution salesperson so there appeared to be a gap if that was the desired role um now i guess one of the conclusions i'm also thinking is it's not just one one solution there isn't really one solution is there when you're talking about people and interventions that that might just help a bit but actually that person might need to know to do things differently or yeah you probably need multiple solutions Potentially you do, uh, and also the, the key thing is how actionable or changeable these things are. So, for example, you might identify, say, personality or some job attitude or whatever it is as being quite relevant to causing or affecting the outcome you want. But if it's effectively not changeable, in terms of the concept of bang for your buck, yeah. then don't go crazy trying to change that one thing because it's actually really hard to change. So it's partly about multiple solutions potentially and also what, what is actually changeable. Lots of things are quite hard yeah. to change. So why focus on things it's hard to change? So what do you subscribe to the whole thing about um, strengths versus or you know, looking at in terms of looking at people? So I'm going off, off on one yeah, slightly yeah, sure. in terms of should you be focusing on being better at the things you do well as opposed to trying to close gaps? What's your? I don't know. I actually don't know the evidence on I that one. Me neither. <laughs> okay, we'll have to go and look me that neither. one up. I'll yeah. find someone else on that one. Um, so in terms of. Uh, we, we've talked about if we were going to look at things, we should try and access some scientific literature and actually maybe just try a bit harder. But it's really also about being sequential and measured in our yeah. approach. And it's also crucial about looking at other sources as well, because scientific evidence in itself is meaningless, like any sources. Yeah, well, I, I don't suppose it's meaningless, but, but also there may not be scientific evidence for the thing that you're trying to deliver, because actually the academic studies don't necessarily correlate with that, what we're trying to absolutely. do with business. And that's fine. That's fine. And that's true of any of those four sources of evidence. You may lack professional expertise. You may have very limited organisation data. You may have not talked to stakeholders. So not having evidence is not in itself a barrier to evidence-based practice. I know that sounds a bit right. contradictory. It's not. It's about a process. It's the fact that you've actually tried. thought about it, yeah. tried and, yeah. and taking a step back, yeah. being objective. Okay. Well, that means that makes it found a bit more reasonable and, and achievable potentially. Okay. So as I've got the luxury of having a professor sitting with me, and I know um, in terms of your role with SEBMA, I wondered, I'm, I'm a member of that, although I have to say, again, searching through some of the literature is sometimes still yeah. quite challenging to get to what you're trying to find. Um, but I mean, what is your recommendation for if I'm an HR professional or an LNDOD and I want to be more scientific in my approach, yeah. how can I do that? Well, I think I'd always say, first of all, look for what the problem is first. Don't go, look for, look, go, don't go look for scientific evidence and then decide your problem is one that can be fixed by this bit of evidence. Start with the, the problem itself. In terms of generally accessing scientific evidence, uh, the Centre for Evidence-Based Management, if you remember, enabled you to have access to quite a few databases, which is useful. 
uh, increasingly with the open access movement in terms of publishing, as a general member of the public, it's easy now, it's easy, still hard, but it's easier to get access to scientific articles. Similarly, if you're a member of some professional bodies such as CIPD or the British Psychological mm -hmm. Society, there's access there. There's also things like ResearchGate. So there's a whole kind of plethora now of, of different ways. That they're often not very always as convenient of getting hold of, of that stuff. So I think getting hold of it is sort of easier. I think what's more difficult is two things. Is one is judging its quality, and that's yeah. what's quite hard to do. So just because it's academic doesn't mean it's not good? Not at all. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it's absolutely not. So there's some very poor quality research. So do you think about the MM? Honestly, you know, MMR sites, the issues, they can have stuff that's example, out there. Yeah. For example, yeah. So there's very, you know, there's very poor quality research, probably some very high quality journals. It's very hard to judge. It's very hard even for the scientists to judge, never mind someone who isn't trained in science. So judging the quality is difficult. And I think the other thing is, which is, which is, a, I think, quite an Achilles heel sometimes for people that want to use scientific evidence, is we, we're not, in the, on the whole, interested in single scientific studies or even a couple of scientific studies. What's important, and that's true of any of those areas of evidence, is the body of evidence. Mm -hmm. So talking to one person as a stakeholder is great, but it is only one person. You know, looking at some yeah. organisational data is great, but it's only maybe one a year. So it's all right, but it's not really giving you the picture. The same is true of scientific evidence. You need to really pull together everything that's relevant. And that's, that's I would say, not impossible. It's very difficult for someone working on their own to mm. do that, to find the other stuff, pull it together, and say, overall, this is the evidence base for this particular propositional problem or hypothesis mm -hmm. or whatever it happens to be. So I think that's a real challenge as well. In other fields, such as medicine, for example, policing, there are national and international bodies set up to actually summarise that research into something called a systematic review uh, or something like a meta-analysis if, if the question lends itself to meta-analysis. So I think, again, on the SEDMA website, you'll see some of the guidelines include how to find things like meta-analyses and systematic reviews because they're not single studies they're trying to pull together lots and lots of studies which is the key thing so that, that's a tricky thing and i think it's it, so there are a lot of as it were partly barriers of access but then barriers of aggregation and barriers of comprehension and judgment there as well yeah. as well as just access so um from from the the time poor hr professional or l d professional yeah. um Look for systematic reviews systematic or meta-analysis. I mean, you can even That's just go onto Google Scholar, read the abstract. type in the thing. <laughs> if you're interested in typing systematic reviews and meta-analysis, that will help. The problem we have in areas of management and HR is there just aren't very, very many systematic reviews yet. That's changing a bit, but there just aren't many around. The problem with the meta-analysis is you get the garbage in, garbage out problem. That if It's true of systematic reviews as well to some extent, but broadly speaking, meta-analysis, of course, can only pull together studies that have addressed the same question in more or less the same way. So it's true you get a lot of data, whether it's any good, whether it's really telling you much scientifically is another issue. So searching for systematic reviews and meta-analysis is probably a better place to start where it is than just searching for single studies. So, sorry, the difference between a meta-analysis and a systematic review? So, meta-analysis is quantitative, for a start, and it, it's pulling together statistically lots of results from similar studies, for example, job satisfaction, job performance, that measure those things in very similar ways. A systematic review can address a much wider range of questions, including qualitative, more questions, and it wouldn't, it doesn't necessarily do a meta-analysis or statistical summary. It pulls together the findings, perhaps from quite different kinds of studies. Okay. And right. often systematic reviews don't depend on having a big body of evidence there to begin with. So you can do systematic review and actually find there's only three, three publications on it, three scientific So That's fine, but systematic reviews tell you what we know and don't know about something. Meta-analyses are only possible. You've already got quite a big quantity of data. Okay, it tells you what's there. Um, and also you said the open, what's changed? Open access yeah. movement. So 
Uh, essentially, and this is a very, very crude way of putting it, but essentially most academics, most scientists work in universities. They are paid already in their jobs by student fees, taxes, etc., depending where you work, research grants from governments. They write their research, they publish it, and then paradoxically perhaps the publishers who get hold of it then charge universities and members of the public and other people to actually read it. So there's been an increasing movement to say, well, this doesn't make sense. Yes. It actually doesn't seem ethically right. And also, yeah, I mean, it's just it's sort of a bit nuts. So there's been more of a move towards saying, recognising that publishers obviously add some value to that, is why should they be able to lock this stuff up behind a paywall? So there's been more and more of a move to sort of try and get away from that, make more stuff open access, and probably in 10, 20, 30 years' time, it probably much of it will be completely free and open. Because yeah. so for you, if you've published something is there, yeah. and it's, you've, your name's on it, do you have the freedom to put it out there in the domain, or does the publisher that, okay, stop you? Okay, that, that's a great question with an extremely long answer. Okay. <laughs> it depends right. on lots and lots and lots right. of stuff. Yes, broadly speaking, yes. But it would have to be the ver- crudely the version of the article before it was finally accepted for publication. Okay, because they own all that kind of different or types and levels of yeah of of kind of access, open access. Right, because yeah. it is an interesting one. We were, so yeah. we were talking offline a bit, weren't we, about actually how you know academia is academia and then HR is over here. And actually, the more if they could merge better, it would you'd yeah. think it would be better. And this would be one of the... Yeah, and, and to, but to me, it's less about merging, I think, academia and practice. To me, it's more about trying to, if you like, encourage practitioners to be evidence-based. Mm-hmm. So, of course, researchers are practitioners too, practitioners of science. Are they evidence-based? Not particularly. Mm. So, to me, the key thing is to the extent to which you believe in evidence-based practice or not, rather than whether you're a researcher or an academic or a practitioner in, in an organisation. That's the key distinction, I think. So, merging, so particularly, obviously, academics are incentivized to do certain sorts of things. Uh, practitioners are incentivized to do other kinds of things that are often quite different. But to me, it's not about merging these groups of people. It's about saying, how can people make better informed decisions? Not, yeah. about the, not about the people, but about the institutions, I would say. But you always think, therefore, the institutions should be asking for there to be research. I'm thinking, yeah. uh, you know, pharmaceutical industry, they've got people, they've got a vested interest and they'll get research done in topics they want to. But I'm just thinking, it ha- so f- pushing it the other way, yeah. you know, as a practitioner, and, and, I'll, and I'll raise that pragmatic word, because mm. I do remember using that on social media, yeah. and, and I think you took issue with it. And I was like, you know, if you're in an organisation and, and your CEO is saying, I want a solution, yeah. and I'm going, well, it's got to be evidence-based and it's going to take me three months to gather the evidence, or there's no evidence because the things that people in academia have studied are not actually relevant sure. to the problems in business. Yeah. I mean, that would be my challenge. How, how could academia be more relevant to business if that's a fair challenge? Yeah, it is. I mean, I don't necessarily think it's academia's job to be relevant to business. Uh, in the same way, I don't think it's practitioners' job to be relevant to academia. I mean, they're just different But being systems. evidence-based makes sense because you're a practitioner yeah. to deliver value to the business. So sure. it's being evidence-based, assuming there is evidence for being evidence-based, which is in there, then you're going to deliver more value to the business. Yeah. Um, but then surely, I don't really understand then, if you're an academic, why would you choose to study something then if it's not going to be relevant? If you know a business topic, if you're not upside. because I think there's, I think there's certain, there's certain things that determine scientific relevance, and certain things that determine, determine practical relevance. So you you could be, for example, doing some incredibly scientifically relevant stuff, say on personality and behaviour, that in the end has no application at work. Yeah, it doesn't mean it isn't isn't important, isn't scientifically interesting, isn't scientifically valid, but it just may happen to have no application. Similarly, uh, yeah, the problems business faces just may not be that important scientifically in another sense. So I think if one 
if anybody wants very kind of practice relevant research, I think that's a different kind of research from purely scientific research. So it's a bit like applied research. So another way of putting this, I suppose, is that if you want a piece of research that will directly help you with a business problem, it may be exactly the kind of research that will never get published in a scientific journal. Is it practically useful? Is it still science? Absolutely. I think as time has gone on, academics in, in across all fields are under pressure to publish certain kinds of articles. So, for example, if a researcher in HR or organisational psychology did a piece of research that was practically incredibly useful yeah. and a huge impact, it may well never get published in the journal because it's not novel, it doesn't have theory, it doesn't use cutting-edge methods. It right. would be seen as, oh, well, you it's know... It's not scientifically just, interesting enough. Yeah, or it's just too descriptive. doesn't mean it isn't practically useful. So I think I think there's a kind of not always, but there can be a kind of contradiction between what is useful in terms of some forms of practice and what is interesting, important in terms of science. And that's okay, I think that's yeah. fine. But it's more it's not a sense of sort of bridging a gap, is how people often put it. I think it's more a sense of always focusing what's the problem, what's the question you're trying to address, and looking around to try and find evidence, whatever kind of evidence it is, to help you make a more informed decision. Mm. Uh, I think if you, how you get more, if you like, applied science done, the way I think universities are going, it's not, it's not going to happen there. So you might need intermediary organisations, mm. you might need to train people in organisations, particularly big ones, to do more themselves. You might need more consultancies who are good at doing applied research, those sorts of things that, that would actually help. What about like organisations funding like MBA students or student, MSc students or giving them sort of thesis rather than it have, doesn't have to be big research? Is yeah. there ways there you can give them? That's that? certainly possible. And again, you, you have this contradiction that sometimes the piece of... It doesn't mean you can't do both the course, but it's often more work for the student that the kind of research that would be acceptable for a master's dissertation, certainly a doctoral thesis, might not be practically that useful to the organisation. Right. So people end up doing parallel pieces of research. Yeah, it's doable, mm. but it can be a bit more mm. work. Yeah. Mm. It's a bit of a dichotomy. Yeah. Mm. Okay. All right. So on that then, this is a kind of link in my head because I know that I'm going to go more into sort of HR terms sure. and jargons and, and fads and things that I, that I think you're great at calling out. And I thought I'm going to pit start with engagement yeah. because I know you've got a view on that. And I was, I'll just say, um, the, I remember when I, the company that I worked for that Gallup, was out sure. there with lots of evidence yeah. and very compelling evidence to such the extent that, and I'm saying evidence in inverted commas, I don't know whether you would agree that it's that kind of evidence for there being a direct line between employee engagement and productivity, profitability, etc. Um, et now, I feel that you also you have some alternative views to engagement. It's not That isn't the whole story. I mean, it, it sold a lot of engagement yeah. surveys for Gallup. It was sure. a great way forward. And I suppose that's where we have to be wary about evidence and the fact that it's sponsored by someone proprietary. Yes. What's your take on engagement? But engagement is it's just an example. I guess there's hundreds of examples. It's just one. Uh, I think, firstly, it has to be very clear about what the claim is. So what's the claim being made? So often in the case of engagement, not just Gallup more broadly, is that, for example, the claim is it has really strong causal effects on the organisational performance. Okay? Does it? I mean, what what would constitute good? It's true there's lots and lots of evidence, and it's true... Is it causal evidence, or is it correlation evidence? It's nearly all correlation. So, and the same is true within sort of just just within the scientific literature. You can say, look at job satisfaction and performance, and you know, I don't know, ninety five percent of it's cross sectional. So, it depends what the claim is. If you say, is there an association between people saying they're satisfied at work and how they perform? Sure. Does it mean that people, if you increase job satisfaction, increase performance? Totally different claim. Mm. So, having evidence and the, whether or not that evidence helps 
kind of establish whether a claim is valid and reliable is a completely different thing. So mm. sure, there's often tons of evidence. The question is what the claim is. So I think in the case of engagement, what happened, I mean, I think we've kind of hit peak and gone over peak engagement now, but certainly when it was hitting its peak, maybe five or six or seven years ago, I think the, the, the claims made were sort of very, very strong and quite clear for things like you know engagement saying the UK was linked to national productivity. Wow, amazingly mm. strong claim. Mm. And as Carl Sagan said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. But the evidence wasn't extraordinary. It was actually mm. quite mundane. It wasn't much of it. It wasn't very good quality to answer that question. So I think it's just, it's, so it's just one example of many where, yeah, there's lots of evidence, but it doesn't support those claims being made. Yeah. I mean, I think engagement... I, I think one of the reasons that engagement was maybe grabbed upon and mm. something is because it gave you something tangible as a metric. If you're an HR person, you say, well, actually, that's a number sure. that I can increase that number from 3.2 yes. to 3.6. Therefore, I'm doing a good Absolutely. job. Therefore, that's me directly. Yeah, sure. I'm in the fluffy, yeah. fluffy HR. That's me directly affecting the business. Yeah, I, think that, I think I would agree. Again, I think it, it, so I, would say, I wouldn't say it's tangible. I would say it appears tangible. Yes. If you say what does it, what does that number mean? I don't know. Because actually, so people metrics quite, are really difficult. Attrition, you know, yeah. finding those to do an HR scorecard, for example, to show your impact mm. is quite challenging. Yes, those are the sort is. of things you have to look at. Yeah, it is. And I, th I think that it appears tangible. I think the idea was a single number uh, was sort of important. And I think there was, a, I think, and it's probably still true now, I suppose, largely that I think uh, HR is always kind of quite keen to prove, apparently, to prove its value to the business. So maybe it tries to do that in ways that seem very headliney and possibly slightly exaggerates, you know, what the value is by, say, as you say, looking at one number and saying it's linked to performance and so on. I mean, having said all this, and this is anecdotal, highly low quality evidence, when I've spoken to engagement managers and people who have engagement, or, you know, employee engagement, the job title, and indeed, as you say, they're very concerned about the level is going up, is good, going down, is bad, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think I've ever met one who's actually ever linked that to business outcomes. They assume that because of other research out there, yeah. broader claims being made, therefore it's going up, it must be good. If it's going down, it must be bad. But they actually don't know that for their organisation. I think it's also quite a nice example where you also need multiple sources of evidence. So even if you have external evidence of a scientific kind that makes that claim, it doesn't mean it's going to be true in your organisation. Mm. It may make engagement scores may make no difference yeah. to your performance. It doesn't mean it never does. Yeah, it could be role specific or industry specific. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So surveys, is there a value to an engagement survey or not? Uh, broadly speaking, if you put if you if you place engagement surveys in the category of employee attitude surveys, in general, I sort of struggle to understand their purpose, both scientifically and both practically. And obviously, you know, they've been around, if you look at sort of a lot of the items that are typically used to measure engagement in lots of surveys, those are items around things like commitment or kind of feedback or the kinds of things. So those items, more or less, those surveys have been around for 60 or 70 years. Are they important? It's, it, I'm not saying they're unimportant, but it, it depends on what the problem is. It depends on what, what you think the issue is. So sure, you can measure people's attitudes at work. They go up and down a bit. They differ between people. Maybe they correlate a little bit with stuff. But what's the problem? What, what, what is that helping us do? And that's, that's always the missing, scientifically, but what, what's it helping us do? So, for example, yeah. if you see a small association between commitment to, say, performance, 
say what? Well, I mean, it's all about, again, it's, it's HR trying to show commercial value. So if, you, if you're the sales director, you can show that the numbers you're bringing. If you're the FD, you can save you yeah. can savings. Yeah. So it's HR being trying to have a metric that they can show a, show a value. Yes. And I see, and, I, and there's therefore, because you've got your, that might be quite annoying. I think that's Tower Bridge going up. Okay, that's Tower Bridge going up. <laughs> so that noise in the background was the Tower Bridge potentially going up and may restart. Uh, so I, I suppose my um, my view is that it's about HR trying to demonstrate commercial value yeah. again, and it's a metric. And I think obviously there is an assumption, therefore, that if people are happier, sure, they're either going to perform yeah. better yeah, yeah. or they're not going to leave. Yeah, and it, both of those have sure. tangible costs. And you made the, you just made the point, there's an assumption. And that's fine, but you need to test it yeah. uh, for your organisation. Yeah, because I think, and I get the point about there's numbers and you can see them going up or down. But in the end, you have to show those things you're yeah. you're measuring are actually important and also you have to be able to show you can affect it so for example if you said if you said you know, what's the evidence that you can intervene to increase organizational commitment i don't know yeah no this is so this is one which yeah. i think is so throwing that back because you can get to the point where you go all right what's the point in my job because um if i can't prove it makes a difference then then what do yeah. i actually, what do i do so where is I the good evidence very, i think that's a very good question for any profession yeah yeah so yeah. so then in HR, where are the areas? So I'm going into HR. Where is the good evidence? Where right. should I focus okay, my energy? Okay, so I would say, again, that's the wrong place to start. What's the problem? Okay. You don't start with... It's, it's a bit like saying, where, you know, uh, you're in an organisation, I've got loads of organisational data. Where's the lots of organisational data? I know. I'll go and look where there's lots of data, and that's my focus. Well, hold on. What's the problem? But it's a bit of chicken and egg, though, isn't it? Because if we're saying that... Um, I can't solve certain problems. So yeah. what I'm saying is, which are the problems that um, I'm most likely to be able to use an evidence-based solution for? I think any problem. No? Okay. So the, any, uh, any, any. Any at all. Yeah. I think, I think, okay, so that's the sense working back. It's a bit like saying, it's not like saying, say, I, use, I don't like using medical analogies, but it's like saying, okay, in which area of medicine is the strong evidence that stuff works? You go, oh, it's in, uh, it's in uh, treating pain. Oh, Okay then what we'll do is we'll go around and treat everyone's pain. But hold on, these people don't have pain. Yeah, but that's what works. But they don't have pain. So you have to start with what the issue or problem is. And you can take an evidence-based approach to anything. Okay, so again, going back to my pragmatism, mm. I'll push on this yeah. one because you've know, got push, people push, out push. here going, well, yeah, well, so uh, I'm going to do nothing. So no, they're not going to do my, anything. My, no, no, they're not going to do anything. They're going to do something. They're going to find... Something. Okay, they're going to do two things. They're going to address important business organizational problems and opportunities number yeah. one number two they're going to do stuff that's more likely to work that is the only thing okay. we should be doing but i'm not going to do a survey no no you <laughs> might it depends might, on, if it works no you might of course, course you can do a survey you can do anything you like but you don't start with a technique you don't start with a phenomenon you start with what are the what's important for this organization yeah and how do i know it's important and what's the evidence for that from multiple sources and if I'm fairly clear, it seems very likely that is quite a serious problem for this business organization or, or it's a good opportunity, then what is the evidence from multiple sources about what's the most likely solution? That's what you do. So if I was going to go, view. and I don't yeah. know if this is a problem, but because I think I'm going to sit forwards back and sure. again, so I'm pushing my, my, history, you know, my, my, my thinking maybe. Um, the situation problem hmm. is that the organization wants to perform, wants to have a greater performance greater output from people performance so 
that's I, re- I appreciate that's kind of forwards as opposed to a diagnostic yeah. problem. Um, and so, and, and the reason I'm coming up with that because yeah. I've got we we got someone to do a research review of what actually drove performance yep. um, because I, I wanted to know because of the business that I run. As, is there any evidence that you can influence it? And the things that came out, I mean, it's goal setting. It's goal setting and feedback was one of the more rigorous ones in terms of um, seeing a correlation with performance. Do you agree with that in terms of? It depends what kind of performance you mean, and it depends on the context. Right. Right. So, oh, so I'm going to push back on you. So you always have to be specific. Yeah. Because because you're right. If you said which motivational t- technique is it the most evidence for? Yeah, absolutely. It's goal setting. If yeah. you said is that going to work here? Different it question. Might not. If you say is this going to be a disaster here? Yeah, it could be. Is this the worst possible thing to do in this organisation? Yes, it could be. So again, it's working back. You don't say where's well, a lots of evidence. What in inverted commas works? Say what is the problem? Go back to that performance issue. You know, as you know, there's lots of different kinds of performance. To say we want we want the organisation or the staff within it to perform better. It's so vague. Yeah. It's just point. It's a point. It's not a problem. Are you saying there's ten percent who are not performing very? Well? Are you saying it's fifty percent? Are you, what, are you talking about contextual performance or system behaviour? You're talking about service performance. You're talking about task performance. What kind of performance are you talk about? Before we talk about performance dynamics, what do you actually mean? Yeah. And what makes you think it could get better? I mean, what a bizarre assumption. Maybe, maybe it can't or not by much. So why are you throwing all these resources and trying to improve performance? Maybe you can do it by 2%. Maybe 2% really matters. Maybe 2% is irrelevant. So you have to understand and diagnose what the issue or problem is first. And it may turn out after all that, that indeed, something like goal setting to increase one particular kind of behavior or performance for one group of employees in one context given there is a deficit which you think is is changeable, it's really a good idea. But you don't know that until you've done all the other work. So in other words, as Einstein apparently didn't say, if he had like, you know, whatever it is, you know, uh, 24 hours to save the world, he would spend 23 hours diagnosing the problem and one hour implementing the solution. I think what people do, not just in HR, HR, L&D, lots of areas of practice, is it's completely reversed. They spend one hour thinking about the problem, 23 hours trying to say, what should we do? Let's do this. What works? What's great? Wrong way around. You have to start with the problem. And that, as I said, that to me is one of the hardest things about being evidence-based. Yes. It's not doing stuff. Anybody can do stuff. It's saying what is the issue or problem we're actually facing and do we really understand what that is and what we want to do first and do that, a clear line between that and what are we going to do about it. Don't even think about what we're going to do about it. What's the issue? And broadly speaking, my sense is, yeah, it's just hard. It's mm. harder to do. It is hard because you're being paid to do a job and people want to see action potentially. Yeah, people, and people think action is doing stuff and <laughs> thinking isn't doing stuff, which is just bizarre because actually doing stuff is really easy. Thinking is quite tough and thinking is doing stuff, of course. That's why we're all you doing know. things and you're, you're busy thinking. This is, this, well, is, this is the real reason for the academic HR. It is. Like. Well, you'd be surprised. I mean, I, I mean, given the performance demands placed in academics now, I think there is less thinking going on. Yeah. There's more doing. What's my next study? What's my next paper? You know, it's not, not a ton of things. In terms of there's lots of action. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's, yeah. We work with a couple of universities, so that makes sense too. Okay, well, this is great. So I've very much got the, um, I still would feel a little bit stuck, but I realise that there's not obvious solutions. Well, okay, it's well, I, I would say feeling stuck is, I would say if you don't feel stuck, you're not doing it. Yeah. Right. yeah. You have to feel stuck because by feeling stuck, you push, you say, what's going on? I don't understand. I don't get it. It's like not knowing stuff. Not knowing stuff is great. Because you ask questions. So, and the same is true with feeling stuck. I feel stuck. I don't understand what's going on, what's happening. Fantastic. That is great. Because at that point, when you feel stuck, you start pushing. Obviously, if you give up, that's a different issue. But if you start pushing, the danger is when you don't feel stuck, 
you're sure everything's fine, everything's going right, you know exactly what you're doing, everything's wonderful, that's dangerous. Yeah. It's interesting. It's actually, I just saw a parallel there with what you're saying between that and coaching. And again, mm. people will often come and say, this is what I want to talk about. And actually, half an hour into it, you actually realise what the problem Quite, is. It yes. sits much deeper it's down. Close. Or counselling yeah. or anything like that, yeah, where people exactly. unwrap it. Yeah. Um, so I suppose as a practical takeaway, if I'm an HR or an L&D professional and I'm going consulting with someone in my business and they're saying, I want this solution, mm. what the best thing we can do in that situation is just keep challenging the goat. So yeah, what is the actual problem? Sure. What's the evidence of the problem? Yeah. To keep digging down yes. as opposed to jumping straight into solution mode. And I'm going to go in and magic wouldn't yeah, it yeah I, mean, uh, go on. I was going to say one, one way to sort of those two questions I asked before you know do you want to do what's important do you want to do it's more likely to work you know they kind of get it it's mother and apple no one disagrees with that so it's okay let, let's think about what's actually important yeah. what, what do you think so you think the problem is as you said the example you gave before these people need development okay but, but what's the problem yeah that's fine what's yeah, the problem right. yeah go on, let's find out what the problem is first what we think it might be or the most likely problem or opportunity then when we can Looking across multiple sources, we're fairly confident that that's what's going on. Now we can start mm. talking about what we can do about it. And I, and I think one thing that is worth making is it's, it's not just about sort of looking backwards, because I think if you have a problem, it can feel like looking backwards. And, uh, yeah. Because it's also about what's the problem in the context of where the business sure. is trying to go. So we, we want to break Absolutely. into this new market yeah. or we've, you know, we need completely new skills. So the problem is yeah. we won't be competitive if we carry on yeah. like this. Um, so, so it is about, that's for me, is this piece about problem side but also being strategic so asking you know asking the person you're talking about yeah the future yeah of it. But in a sense, but in a sense why. absolutely but you can only and that's you can only look forward on the basis of historical data so if you're anticipating you won't be competitive well what's that is that what's that based on a hunch well, I, I, no. I can give an example there where um, the particular marketplace was changing. So you had people with um, old sort of telecom skills and it was moving into mm. a digital marketplace. Oh, sure. So but that, that was saying you still need to look back to look forward. Yeah. yeah. As it's not random, you haven't invented it. You're, you're projecting forward on the basis of what's happened historically. Yeah. So yeah. I think looking back and looking forward is the same thing. I mean, you have to look back to look forward. Yeah, that's a natural vice thing. Yeah. Okay, right. So um, I've kept you talking and we've got the bridge going again there. Uh, just a few kind of quick fire ones, I suppose, if there's anything to get out of it, out of it although I've got most of them uh, here. Um, what's your what's your worst HR fad or jargon? Worst? What really kind of... Oh, I don't know. It varies that... a lot. Uh, gosh, what's your current? <laughs> the current thing I find quite jarring is employee experience. Because it's not those. I just don't know what it means. I was just going to say, what does it uh, mean? And when I've seen definitions, <laughs> so I got an email the other day from a conference saying something like, "Employee experience is the sum total of everything the employee experiences from when they first know the organisation to applying for a job to going to work there, to what it feels like to be there, to their laptop, their computer, their IT, their everything, physical environment." It's I don't know, but for some people, then it says, "How does all this link?" to the bottom line come and learn so, so how does everything link to the okay so I'm not sure what it means so it's sort of annoying just because it's quite hard to pin people down to yeah. what it means and I think and I think when people say oh it doesn't matter what you call it it's always a red flag to me like hold on if you don't even know what, what this is you literally don't know what you're talking about because yeah. it's kind of everything so at the moment and I think I think also it's happened because it's taken over from employee engagement yeah yeah it's, it's kind of on yeah um so again, going back to one of your things you talked about, um, appraisals, they're pretty uh, dead things in many ways. There's criticism about them. But uh, you know, so be one of your articles, you sort of said, yeah, be, we could just chuck them out of the window. Um, what would you replace them with? Nothing? Well, it depends what you're trying to do. It depends what the problem is. So I think, I think annual appraisals can probably have some sort of purpose. 
but it depends what you're trying to achieve. So to put it at one, one extreme, you could say, well, why bother to evaluate people's performance at all? Mm-hmm. What's the point? Yeah, and generally it might be, might be for pay. That's one may, reason for that. It may be, and it may be in some contexts it's totally unnecessary. Maybe some contexts are very hard to do. So, so again, when it comes back to saying, what should we do around performance pay? That's starting with a solution you think isn't working, but what's, what's the, what are the problems you need to address or opportunities around performance? And it may involve some kind of appraisal. It may be nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. So it may be weekly conversations. It may be measuring stuff. It may be giving people feedback. It may be selecting people differently. So I think, again, you have to start not with the technique, but with what the issue is. Yeah. And, and the reality is that you can't end up with a void. Well, you could end up with a void, but that could be even worse. But I suppose until you do these things, you don't quite know what is going to be what, the impact. What's the void? Well, I'm just thinking... You could do you replace it with something. I think where people go, our oh, oh, appraisal's dead, chuck it out, and you go, oh, yeah, of course, fine. Yeah. But okay, so do nothing? Are you yeah. really thinking that people are going to be. Bef- I, I think that's a nonsense, really. Do you actually think that managers are therefore going to have weekly conversations mm. um, just because they want to? Everyone's so busy. I just don't think that would happen. So I think there has to be um, some sort of guidance, actually, in terms of what people should do in an organisation. What works and what works for one organisation is different from another. And that's, some of that's about the culture of the organisation as much as, um, yeah, the, uh, as to the practicalities. Uh, so some of them just wouldn't, wouldn't talk regularly. Some people would go, actually, it's only appropriate to have a conversation every quarter. I mean, you just sort of, you know, as an academic, the universities that I work with, I, I'm actually, you know, it's a bit like medics, actually. You're kind of this totally different entity in terms of performance management or viewed as such by HR in, in universities compared to operational staff um, and I don't know if that's because you're kind of, it's kind of an individual thinking role it's an expert role um, mm. and I can't imagine yeah you probably hate appraisals in, in, a, in academic scenarios but I think I'm thinking digressing there um, I think I've asked you this question already and I don't think you gave me an answer to it so I'm not sure whether you'll give me an answer if I ask it to you again um, but I was going to say because you'll say, what's the problem? I think is your answer. So if the answer isn't, what's the problem? Yeah. Where is the strongest evidence in HR for practice? What, 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 what have you been most impressed by in terms of evidence? I just don't tend to think like that. <laughs> because I'm not, I'm not, I put it, I'm not ranking a whole list of random HR practices and saying, for which one of these practices were totally different things is the most evidence. I just don't. You don't think that, that? No, because I think, and again, scientific, I think it's not very useful because, for example, certainly in terms of research, there's often a lot of evidence about something just because it's fashionable yeah. in academia. And there's often not much evidence about something that's really important. So I think it's... Because mis- people have had chance to research have exactly. all done that. Exactly. So in other words, it's kind, of, it's kind of misleading okay. to say, look at... It's misleading to say, because we're not, we're not so much interested in quantity, we're interested in quality. Mm-hmm. So there may be a lot of evidence for some sorts of things. It doesn't mean that's better than anything else. Mm-hmm. It just um, means a lot of evidence for it. So. And that loops us back to how we started in many ways. So if we want to try and look for quality and quickly, systematic yeah, reviews exactly, is the best Yeah, exactly. Place systematic people tend to do that. They'll say, how many studies are there? What quality are they? What are they showing? Are they showing clear effects, consistent effects, mixed effects? And even sometimes if there's very mixed effects, it doesn't mean that practice technique isn't useful but what the mixed effects might be telling you as you said before it's very contingent on context yeah so again some people sometimes sort of say well you know oh it's very mixed effects therefore it doesn't work no it means it works differently in different situations understanding how and why it does that is a different issue but i mean mixed effects isn't necessarily a bad thing but it's often seen as meaning oh it doesn't really work brilliant well i'm going to 
So thank you very much for your time, Professor Rob Brina. Okay. I got it right, have I? <laughs> the end. Um, that was, that's the conclusion of our HR Uprising podcast. Um, hopefully the sound effects were um, enjoyable as opposed to completely distracting. Um, I found that really, really yeah, it's great. interesting. Thank you very much. I really appreciate having you on. Thank you okay. so much. Thanks very much. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising podcast. You can access more information, including resources or links mentioned in the show at our website, www.hruprising.com. Also, you might want to join our LinkedIn community or tweet to us at HR Uprising. We'd love to hear from you.